Many people who come to DBT struggle with boundaries. Many. How do they learn effective, appropriate boundaries? One of the many reasons I promote comprehensive or a full DBT when it's needed over just skills alone is because of this reason. Because one of the things that DBT does is it teaches appropriate limits. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. In mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. If you're looking for easy access to thousands of licensed therapists, go to BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. That's BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. No better time to get started with mental health on Mental Health Awareness Month. That is now May. Take advantage of this 10% off. Just press the link in the show notes, BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in once again to Hope to Recharge podcast. It is May Mental Health Awareness Month, a big month for us. We're continuing on breaking the stigma on borderline personality disorder. Today, I have Dr. Chaya Liba Kobernik. She is gifting us her very precious time, and we're going to deep dive into understanding DBT. DBT became a very funky term to use. A lot of people say, yeah, I practice DBT. Yeah, I go to DBT. Do you really practice DBT? What is DBT for those that don't know? And why is it so important to understand the full scope of how to practice DBT? Dr. Chayaliba will deep dive with us into these big terms, understanding she is a lot of fun. I think you'll have to listen to it a few times because there is such powerful wisdom in this episode. It made a huge shift in my understanding of DBT. I thought I knew a lot about DBT. Now I know it on a new level. I am so grateful for her time, for her knowledge. Enjoy this episode. What was it that you said, I want to learn DBT more than anything else? I think that the model, I've heard other therapists talk about this, that this model just fits better for them. And I find uh, there are other treatment models I use and this model works for me. I think working through this dialectical framework, the idea that there are multiple truths, that I don't hold all the answers, that there isn't one side to this that people are doing the best they can and they need to do better. That works for me. It's for me better in my style. Also, the we really value radical genuineness. I am a, I consider myself a very forward and open therapist. I'm not hiding behind something. I really, I'm going to share with you my concerns and my expectations and my how I'm experiencing you and, and what I want for you and what I see is not working for you. Yeah. So that, that model just works well for me. And I also just see it work. I love seeing it work. That's a very good answer because you see results. It's hard yeah. with therapy. It's hard to see results right away. We were talking about it before that people want to see results right away. And it's very frustrating to be in therapy and healing treatment and all kinds of different modalities. And we don't see the actual results. And it could be very exhausting and sometimes feeling hopeless. So when you could see results and you could do it on your own without a therapist, also when you learn the skill and then when you acquire it with a therapist and then you go and you're like, oh, I could do this in, in adversities in my life. It's very empowering. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me what made you go into psychology as a young 20-year-old? I knew I was interested in humans and how people think and how people work. And I, I was just exploring different things. And I ended up getting the chance to work in a psychiatric inpatient unit. And I just fell in love. I just felt so at ease there and so in my element and just loved getting to be there with people present in their, in, in just such a dark and difficult time, it was really powerful. That kind of sealed the deal for me that I want to be doing this. Did you have any exposure growing up or as maybe an early adult with someone that had borderline personality disorder or any personality disorder? The other personality disorders we could talk about, but in terms of borderline personality, I don't know if anybody like would use that 
term per se, but certainly seeing people struggle with big, the big emotions. And I, I always say, we're in the same boat here. Somebody who experiences their emotions is quite big. I don't see that as a diagnosis. As, that's not, well, I don't see that as a diagnosis. I don't even see that as a problem. It's a wonderful thing. Right. And somebody who has a delicate, exquisite palate who can taste the most intricate things would is considered a superstar. They're able to go and evaluate food, delicate delicacies in food. Uh, clearly not my field. But that, that nuance in taste, what's the difference when it's coming to nuance and emotion? I guess it comes into place with a delicate palate if they're obese and they can't control themselves and it, and it interferes with their daily life. The same thing is yeah. with emotions. If it interferes in our relationships, with our work pattern, with our daily routine, that's when we have to get help. It's not an issue, just like an addiction. What's an addiction? But interferes with our healthy way of living. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when people experience big emotions, that in and of itself is not problematic. In fact, that can be a wonderful thing. People with big emotions can be the best artists and musicians and lovers and parents and givers and nurturers when it's when they when they have the skill to navigate life with big emotions. A hundred percent. So you're yeah. seeing it as a gift that has to be navigated properly with the right tools. Yeah. In DBT for children, we talk about it and we call it a super sensor. So mm-hmm. Our kids in DBTC are super sensors and and just like any superpower. Mm-hmm. You need the skill to channel it properly right. and to use it effectively. And that takes work and learning and an effort. And it's still a superpower. Did you ever struggle with any mental illness, mental struggle growing up? So I definitely am somebody who experiences her emotions in a big way and learning how to navigate that. I would say a huge piece of that has been learning mindfulness learning to listen to my emotions, learning how to navigate life with big emotions has been, I think, a a big, a big deal, a big deal for me. Okay. And did you want to figure out the mind? Yes, definitely. Yeah. I, I, there was one point, I think when I was in ninth grade where I, I, for some reason, I always said, for some reason, I'm good at math. I don't know why. Because you're brilliant. No, for some reason, I'm just decent at math. And and I don't really know why. I don't know what to do with that. And I maybe I'll be an engineer or something. And then pretty quickly after that, I said, people are just so much more interesting. And whenever people say, your job is so interesting, I'm like, I don't know why anybody does anything else. Like It is yeah. really is fascinating. As you said before, the fact that you see results is the reward to the fascination. Sometimes mm-hmm. when we're very deep analytic minds, when we can't figure out something, it gets us to frustration. And I always say the a lot of depression comes from not understanding the world and understanding pain. And we don't understand the, the, the ginormous part of this world, of this universe. And it gets us to this, oh, we, and there's no answers. But when there are answers, it's comforting. It's really comforting. So I, I understand that. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's deep dive into, let's go a little bit back for people that don't know what DBT is, but they heard the, it's a word that goes, that's going around a lot lately, the last five, 10 years, it's going around more and more. What is DBT? Sure. So yeah, that's the question. So DBT stands for dialectical behavior therapy. And I like to say it's a therapy, meaning it's not a medication, it's a, it's a therapy and it's a behavior therapy, meaning that the primary way that we're going to work on emotions and work on our issues is through tackling behaviors or looking at behaviors. And what DBT adds over other DBT treatments or other behavioral therapies is this idea of dialectics. And dialectics is a philosophical approach, but the most important thing you need to know about dialectics is the idea of multiple truths. The idea that there's no absolute truth and that there's always multiple ways of looking at things. The main dialectic we talk about in DBT is acceptance and change. At any given moment, I accept reality exactly as it is, and I'm working towards change. So it's radical acceptance with the power to change. It's like acceptance is like they both need to coexist. I can't push for change without also having acceptance. And I can't purely accept if I'm not working towards change. This kind of when Marsha was developing DBT, she wasn't looking at borderline personality disorder. The only reason she gave that, she, she ended up using that diagnosis is because at the time, the federal grant giving organization required a diagnosis to fund 
research. So she found that all the people she was working with qualified for this diagnosis and hence borderline became the driving force. But it really was, she went to the local hospital and said, send me your worst. And they gave her these chronically suicidal women. They gave her women who were having multiple suicide attempts. And she started by working with them behaviorally. She was a behavior therapist. And then I started working with them and they said, hey, Marsha, our lives are really hard. Stop telling us to do things differently. We're really in pain. She said, okay, no problem, no problem. Backing off. And she switched to a much more acceptance-based, listening to the whole person, validating stance. And the women said, Marsha, our lives are really falling apart. We need help. It's nice of you to validate us, but something's got to change. And then she added this idea of dialectics. So this both and world. Where Wait, I'm so confused. I'm going to stop you. I thought that she developed it on herself when she was in the psych ward in and out. And she said, no more. I'm not willing to put myself into another psych ward. I'm going to develop this treatment for myself. She certainly learned a lot through her own process, but that's not how the technical treatment manual came to be. Wait, so the manual really happened through her journey with clients? Yeah, she developed this treatment through the like 70s predominantly, mm-hmm. 80s, and then in, in 93 the first her first book came out. But that was after years of testing out her model. She wanted to make sure she really had something that worked. And I think that's one of the reasons why DBT has gotten so popular is because it's one of the most well-researched treatments that exist. And that doesn't mean that it's the right treatment for every single person, but it means we have a really good sense that this treatment works. What, what do you mean? Well, that's a big statement. The most tested? What does that mean? It, it's a very well-researched treatment, meaning so in order to be considered evidence-based or to be considered based on the research, that this treatment works based on research, you need two, two tests that that are done in a certain way. It's called the randomized controlled trial. You need two tests that are done in a particular way that show that the treatment works. DBT has, I think at last count, at least 30 big numbers here for that kind of data. And it was all under the supervision of Marsha Linehan? No, what we actually want to see is other people testing the same model and also seeing that it works. And it has been tested across the world and consistently shows great results. So she didn't create it only for borderline. It happened to have worked very well with borderline personality disorder, but... Diagnosis was never the point. That was never the point. So why is it that people connect it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because at the end of the day, that is what that is the diagnosis that, that ends up carrying the name. But, but Marcia never cared particularly about the diagnosis. She considered it a treatment for people who have struggles in the emotion regulation system. Or basically consistently struggling with their emotional regulation ability. And that's why I'll say to clients who come to me, I don't care if you have borderline personality disorder or not. That's not my point. My point is I see you struggling with big emotion. This is the treatment for big emotions. And therefore that's my recommendation. People come in for other things. People come in for depression. This is not necessarily the best treatment for depression. This is not necessarily the best treatment for anxiety. There are other treatments that, that work really well for those things. This works when people struggle with big emotions and don't know how to manage them and how that shows up in life. So you said before that one of the things are that you have to accept while moving towards change. Did I say that properly? Yeah, acceptance and change at the same time. We need both. We can't have one. Okay. What if there's something you can't change, a death? Somebody died. So I have (laughs) to accept that he died but I can't bring him back. How is the change? Yeah. So I guess the change depends on the, I'm not not necessarily going to change the fact that the person's not here. I can change my own response to how I'm dealing with that. So I can accept reality as it is and work to change how I'm handling it. Meaning we're constantly working to balance acceptance and change within our lives. That doesn't mean that every situation is going to call for each. There there are four ways to solve a problem. You can do nothing. You can mm-hmm. fix it, you can change how you feel about it, or you can make it worse, or you can accept. So it's not always, always going to mean that every problem is solved by acceptance and change, but I'm going to approach my life from a place of accept- both acceptance and change. Okay, 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 I'm getting that. The change of the way I am living with the adversity. If it's not serving me and I'm struggling with that, the change is towards that. I wonder if we can take a sample of what it's like to break down an emotion. I know that there's so many different modalities and levels of DBT, but can we give an example? Is there like an example? What can you give me? Somebody would come to you and how the treatment would look like in the first session. Sure. So I do like to explain the difference because I think people think of DBT as skills. 
And DBT is not skills. Actually, there was more recent research that 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 helped us understand the difference between skills and DBT because okay. those are two different those are two different things. So yeah, so full DBT has four parts to it: individual DBT, which is a certain t- it's a style of doing individual therapy. It's not just any regular standard individual therapy. It's a particular style. DBT skilled group is is a second part. Third is phone coaching. And fourth is consultation team for the therapist. DBT therapists got to be on a consultation team. What does that mean? I'm meaning a team of DBT therapists who are working together to make sure that we're staying as adherent as possible to the model, like that we're really doing DBT. Because and, and this is something that's very important within the DBT world is we know DBT works. So when therapists say that they're doing DBT, but they're not, what they what clients end up learning if it doesn't work is that DBT doesn't work. And that's problematic because it might be that the treatment would work if you would have gotten the treatment. So it's really important, I think, for people to know what full DBT is and to know when they're not getting that. It's okay. It's okay to get treatments that are not DBT. It's okay to get treatments that are DBT informed or have pieces of DBT. Just know what you're getting. Why would anybody say uh, we are, we're treating DBT and not do it and not practice it? I think because I think there's this misinformation out there that that DBT is skills only. So if I teach my client a couple of DBT skills, we're doing. D- I have people come to me all the time and said, "Oh yeah, I did DBT with my last therapist." They mean that they learn what mindfulness is. Oh wait, is it is that really the relationship? Mindfulness is DBT. Mindfulness is just a part of mindfulness DBT. is a part of DBT exactly, and a million other things. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. So I do. I'm a big proponent of just educating people that there are four parts to full DBT. Not everybody needs that. And if you're not getting that, just know what you're getting. Now, wait, I want to just, I want to ask you about the last part that you said that you have to be a part of. Consultation team, right. Mm -hmm. So who's this consultation group? How does it work? And how do you know that what you're actually working with your clients is reflecting what you're going in the consultation group? Every case is being shared in the consultation group? So D, so consultation team is therapy for the therapist. Right. Because this we're working with a really nuanced, complex treatment, usually offering it to people with a lot of nuance and complexity to what they're bringing to the table. So we want to make sure that therapists don't burn out and that they do what they're supposed to do. Okay. So that's the idea behind the model. And the idea is that we're a team of DBT therapists serving serving a community of DBT. But what goes on in this group? How does it work? Yeah, we structure it um, like this. We start with a mindfulness practice. We read our DBT agreements. So we have agreements. One one of my favorite agreements is the phenomenological empathy agreement, meaning that people come to therapy for reasons. And then to be frustrated with them for those exact reasons makes very little sense. So if we can have empathy from a place of understanding that if somebody's coming in because they're struggling with big emotion, then it makes sense that if they're sitting in session, they might have big emotions. And so to have empathy for that rather than to be frustrated or annoyed with that it makes a lot more sense. So that's, so we read through our DBT agreements and then we set an agenda of things we want to put on the agenda. And you don't put a client on the agenda, you put yourself on the agenda. So I might say, I'm feeling burned out in my work with this client. I want some validation. And then my, and I'll share what's going on and my team members give me validation. Wow. Yeah. So that's a big part. That's one of the four parts of DBT. I do like to also say just in terms of individual DBT, And anybody who's doing DBT ideally is working from a, and this might come more from my training in adolescent and child work, but I do this with adults as well, whenever possible, work from a system model. People don't exist in a vacuum. People exist in a system. Most of the time (laughs) they exist with other people. So when I, whenever possible, I bring family members in to, to treatment, whether that's just having a session with a parent or having a session with a spouse. Or having a session with everybody together to just discuss and, and just as needed, it's not necessarily so structured, but that's also a part of that package. So that's what full DBT is. So DBT skills is something that you get, you train the client through the sessions, through the ongoing sessions that when they're not in session, they can pull out their toolkit and say, okay, what skills should I use now? Absolutely. And we do that through our skills group. And we have people come to our skills group who are not in full DBT. They're seeing an outside therapist and they come to us just for skills group. But then they build up this huge toolkit from that skills group. And one really important part of learning skills is, add, is the phone coaching element. Because 
when you're learning skills, it's really nice to learn it, but it's not the same as math. And so it's you learn two plus two is four and then two plus two is four and then you move on with your life. When you learn how to do one of these skills, it doesn't mean you're going to actually live your life skillfully. And in order to acquire the skill and bring it into all the different areas of your life, that's really tough to do. And we don't have any expectation that people are going to just on their own, learn a skill and be able to go forth and do that. So we ask everybody to do home practice where they're practicing the skill in real life. And we also encourage phone coaching. When you're in the moment and you want to be skillful and you don't know how, you call for phone coaching and we walk you through how to be skillful. And that leads to that skills acquisition and skills generalization. So that's also a really important part. How often can one get phone coaching? Can they be, but doesn't that give a sense of I'm not on my own? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I, part of a therapist boundary, you come once or twice a week and this is your slot and we don't talk in between. You have to deal with whatever comes up in between. How is this different? Yeah. In DBT, we're not very supportive of that. Marsha always says waiting a week to just a hundred percent is it's very punishment. It's arbitrary punishment. And we're not big fans of that because again, like I said, DBT is a very radically genuine treatment and I'm a human and you're a human and I want your humanhood to be a little more functional than it is now. And making this a very structured professional relationship only goes so far. So yeah, we do want to have limits. And so the way we talk about it in DBT is about observing your limits. I observe my limits and that's my responsibility. People will ask me, oh, you're in Israel. I can't call you. I didn't want to wake you up. I didn't want to bother you. I'll say that's on you. It's your job to call. And it's my job to answer within my limits. I have such a hard time with that. Okay, we could talk about uh, it. Yeah, I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because that's boundaries. And if someone does it, is not aware of boundaries, not because they're a bad person or whatever, I, I find with my children no one, there's a certain maturity of learning boundaries. I was just speaking to a young lady and she had no clue that um, talking to her friend every single day about her struggles was breaking a boundary. She was shocked. What, isn't that a friend? No, you, you can't do that to a friend that's a young mother and trying to start life. And you're just talking to her every single day about your problems. And she was shocked that her friend set boundaries. I said, she set boundaries because you overstepped your boundaries. But then I learned that I was judging her. I was really judging her, really not nice, because no one taught her boundaries. So what if no one acquired it? Great question. Many people who come to DBT struggle with boundaries. Many. How do they learn effective, appropriate boundaries. One of the reasons I will really like one of the many reasons I promote comprehensive or a full DBT when it's needed over just skills alone is because of this reason. Because one of the things that DBT does is it teaches appropriate limits. People don't necessarily come in knowing appropriate limits. And through DBT, they learn that. One place I used to work, I would get calls. I would get these voicemails. Hi, I'm going to kill myself. Click. Okay, great. And now I'm hearing this. And I was working in a setting where I wasn't able to do independent phone coaching. I would get this call, my voicemail, and I would hear it Monday morning. And this call was left Thursday night. Well, that's fun. Okay. So I sat with this client and I said, Hey, when I hear that, it's really terrifying for me. And he said, Really? Yeah. So we talked about what he could do that would be much more effective. And then he learned that. But what if he was really feeling suicidal at that time? What should he have done? Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness, self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others, essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one -on -one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one -on -one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. 
But what if he was really feeling suicidal at that time? What should he have done? We had other systems and depending on each therapist has to have their own system for how to navigate that. And we do have systems for navigating that. But at that setting, there was a different system and he wasn't using that system. Okay. And so learning appropriate boundaries is a skill that needs to be learned. And when a therapist has arbitrary limits, clients don't learn that. They feel frustrated. They feel hurt. They feel rejected. They feel abandoned. That's people who come to DBT very often have had that experience of having seen multiple therapists feeling rejected, abandoned. I'm not good enough. There's something wrong with me. And when you come to DBT, if a therapist is actually able to observe their own limits, not set limits, observe their own limits and stretch when appropriate and flex when needed, then it works. Then it works. And I can say, hey, that's not working for me. So you as the therapist could say, listen, you called me already four times. We discussed this four times this week. I think you have the skills to deal with and then put your boundaries. I might not say that. I might say you called four times and it was about the same thing each time. And I'm wondering what you're hoping, what you're hoping will be different this time. Although I find it rarely happens. People usually err on, people usually err on the side of calling too little rather than too much. And usually people who are calling more in the beginning, then start learning the skills and don't need it as much as time goes on. So I haven't had a lot of I have people, a therapists are very afraid of clients overcalling. The research doesn't show that. My experience doesn't show that. Most people end up calling too little. And then I end up talking to them, hey, you need to call. It's your responsibility to call. That's interesting. And is, is the coaching the same person? Are you also the therapist and also the coach? Ideally, the coach should be the individual therapist. So I do coaching for all my private clients and people who are in our group alone, either I do coaching or my co-leader does coaching with them. Yeah. And is there a limited time for coaching 15 minutes versus an hour? There's no time limit on it. We usually, when we're orienting to it, we say it's usually about a five to 10 minute call. And very often it's WhatsApp or texting or email. And that very often is enough as well. The big point is in the moment, catching it and then living differently. And then you see those changes happen. It's so much more powerful. I I just don't understand how a therapist, let's say you have six clients a day and then you have a life. And then in between these six clients a day, you have to pick up other clients that are really struggling with coaching. When, how do you do it all? How do you not collapse? You have to observe your limits. And if it means that, and that's why DBT, a big part of DBT is commitment. You're committing to DBT, but I've got to commit to you. And if I don't feel that I can commit to you with my other commitments, my other clients have to come first. Clients I've already committed to come first. And if I don't have... If, if it's beyond my limits to take on another client, then that's, I'm going to take on another client. So you live in Israel and your clients are in America. You're seven hour difference. So you're going to sleep when they're ending work. How does that, how do you hold space for that? And then you have to wake up as a mother early in the morning. Yeah. So for, no, when I, when I was moving, I was thinking about how, how are we going to navigate this one? And I decided I, rather than I'm more of a morning person. So rather than go to sleep late, and see people in the afternoon in the, in a New York afternoon. I'd rather go to sleep early and wake up early. So that's what I do. And what if someone needs coaching at three o'clock in the morning, your time? And if I'm sleeping, then they'll have to wait. So that is okay. Yeah. You saw, and that's why we build in other systems. As often as I can, I do answer. And but it's not clear boundaries. Nine to five. This is your, I'm here exactly. nine to five. This is my slot for you. It's not arbitrary. This is so different. This is so, you think it's going to change the traditional way of therapy? Do you think they're going to adapt this a little bit? I think that therapists like the arbitrary boundaries. I think it keeps things walled in and in my space and in my comfort zone. And at the same time, I think if you really care, if you're really passionate about what you do and you really want to change people's lives, then you have to think about what actually works and not about what feels right. Yeah. But therapists would say it does, it feels right because they're, I'm teaching them boundaries and I'm teaching them to cope. Okay. So the question then is, are your clients learning boundaries? Because Or are they learning to deal? Are they in crisis mode and they feel alone? Or are they really coping and they're like, okay, it's a good thing I couldn't call my therapist because I figured it out. Listen, I, I see that when you observe your own limits, clients learn how to observe their own limits and how to respect your limits. And then they learn what boundaries are. And it makes sense. And it's not a rejection and it's not a random, this is just the rules. And I don't have to sit and suffer with it for no reason. It's, I love this topic, but, and I can't believe that this is, I can't, I know so many people that are in DBT and I didn't understand that it was this, that the coach was really the therapist and it was not 
you have coins, you have three coins a week and you can use them. So use them appropriately. I thought that was the one. You have coaching times with certain coaches and you have the therapist and don't overstep your boundaries. Yeah. That's what I thought it was. So there, there for sure are therapists who do make arbitrary rules around it. If you look at the literature, you look at the research, you look at Marsha writings on this topic, she actually writes that she, that when she was developing this treatment, she spoke with all these experts in working with suicide, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic experts in working with suicide, and they all took 24-7 coaching. Wow. You cannot work with this population and not be available. You're committed to, it's like a surgeon that has uh, an emergency at three o'clock in the morning. You yeah. can't say I'm, I'm going to be a brain, uh, whatever surgeon, uh, a heart or whatever, that's an emergency. And you're like, you can't sign up for it if you don't, if you don't want to be around the clock. This yeah. is the commitment and you have to know that you're built for it. I wanted, to, I want to share a moment of gratitude. I know that I'm, I don't know if you, know, you don't know me, but I, one of my biggest MOs, mm -hmm. a lot of things that people know me for is that I highly believe in gratitude and mindfulness and creating your good with what you have. I'm huge into gratitude. I practice gratitude every morning, every night, a thousand times during the day. It's my go-to when I'm anxious. I don't go to Xanax. I go to gratitude. That's just what awesome. I am. And if I have a room that I can lock myself in, that's even better. I lock myself in that I can breathe through my gratitude. I have a huge moment of gratitude for my healer, Brian. And I have two episodes with him that we recorded about a year ago. Because when I worked with him, now I wasn't I can't even tell you how many traditional therapists and psychiatry and whatever. I always felt that when he is available, answer me. Yeah, I had my session with him. Yes, I, we did the work. Yes, we went through it. But if I was drowning in a panic attack, I was able to reach out to him. And if it was available, he answered to me. And that comfort of knowing that he'll, within 24 hours, he'll answer me. I'm not alone. He's going to hold space for my pain and will help me overcome it. I always say, I think the ice and I make fun of him and he knows that I make fun of him. And I say, Brian, I don't know your power. I really don't know what your power is. But I think for me, my biggest part of my healing together with you, you were there with me and I didn't feel alone. And that loneliness that people feel in between sessions is what's brutal. And I always say that I try to mimic his as a pay it forward to my clients. And when I see a client and people are like, oh, it's so, I had a client that texted me yesterday. Thank you so much for caring about me and reaching out and making time for me because I really care because it really hurts me because I know what pain feels like. To be in that week to week long stretch is brutal. And the mind goes to these racing places. I understand the therapists that are very traditional. I understand, but there is more to it. And I'm so happy I'm so happy to hear that DBT offers that. Yeah, I would say more than offers that. It, it a core value. Yeah, it talks about as a requirement. Don't yeah. go into this work if you are not going to show up a hundred percent. Wow, that is so beautiful. So I asked you before to so you explained it so nicely. So there's not so there's DBT treatment, then there's the group, and then the skills, and then there's what the therapists have to go through. So let's say I come for so somebody that comes for DBT treatment doesn't necessarily go through group. So it's one of the four, one of the four pieces is skills group. Once in a while, there are reasons why we'll do skills individually. I just always feel like it's a shame because there's so much to be gained from skills group. Just seeing you're not alone, hearing other people's process. Also, one of the beautiful things about skills group is that it's um, a little bit of a rolling admission. People join every time we cover mindfulness. So you get to see people who have been doing this for a little bit longer than you and hearing their success and their progress with it is so empowering. So yeah, I really value skills group. That said, once in a while, I do skills individually. But yeah, skills is a part. So what do you do if someone is so ashamed and they don't want to, they're still living in the stigma and they don't want to say, if I'm in group, people are going to know. And I'm sure you have that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. What I say is that, listen, everybody's there for a reason and, and nobody, we all Everybody wants to be respectful because everybody's bringing their own stuff there. I also try one of the that like one of the reasons I'm excited to be able to offer this virtually is because I can offer it to a wider range of people without anybody knowing each other, really having more of a mix of people. So that's also nice. Yeah. And I just stress the reasons why I'm encouraging it, why I'm recommending it. And, and we talk about that it's hard and I don't necessarily 
a couple of my clients will laugh at this because it's going to be a little pushy, but, but not everybody starts skills group right away. I just had this client who I, I saw her, I started working with her maybe in July, June, July. And she walks in and literally says, I want to work on mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, and motion regulation. And I said, great, come to skills group. And she said, oh, I don't need skills group. And we worked together for six months and she did fantastically. And then at the end of six months, she said, oh, I still really want to work on these areas. And I said, great, you ready for group? She said, yeah. So what's the difference? She's joined skills group and it has been phenomenal for her. It was exactly what she needed. Sometimes people need those six months to trust that this is going to work and that it's worth it for them. Yeah, I, I do see that happen. But ha- so in group, you learn, you develop different skills than in one-on-one sessions. Yeah. I find that even though I do pull skills here and there for clients as we, as it comes up in session, it's very different than skills group is a very structured place. For example, in, in, in individual sessions, we have a whole list of priorities that are before learning skills. Priorities that, that, that we focus on in, an, in a DBT session. In skills group, the highest priority is teach skills. That's the highest priority. If somebody is distracted, not a priority. Highest priority is teach skills. And so skills are taught. So you, so you really get that. You really get that toolbox much more readily. And in individual sessions, what goes on in individual sessions in terms of working with DBT? How is it different in a session with versus a traditional therapy session? Yeah, I like to say this to any of my clients, not just DBT clients, but anybody who wants to work with me, I say, listen, I don't do schmooze therapy. There are lots of therapists who do do schmooze therapy. Plenty of people are looking for schmooze therapy and they should go to those therapists. Is schmooze a Hebrew word? I don't know. (laughs) I think they actually might be Yiddish. Yeah. Schmooze is a way of saying just talking and venting therapy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to vent once in a while. And people come to me because they're suffering and I want to help them not be suffering. I don't want anybody to see me for the rest of their lives. I want people to get better and move on and live their healthy lives without me. Goodbye. Mm. Go be happy. No, go live your healthy life. I, I, I try to be clear about that right off the bat. That's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to look at what's not working and we're going to move you towards that. And we're going to give you a way to get to that healthier place that you want to be at. And so for DBT in particular, we start with what's called pre-treatment. That's before stage, that's stage zero, before stage number one. And in pre-treatment, it's all about commitment. We're discussing what do you want, what's not working? What do you want to be different? And committing to DBT, orienting to DBT, what it is. That's pre-treatment. Once we both commit to each other, two-sided, this has got to be the therapist has to commit and the client has to commit. Once we're committed, we start DBT. Once we start DBT sessions, individual DBT looks like this. We, clients fill out a diary card between sessions where they're keeping track of their emotions, that creates a lot more emotional awareness of their own experiences. We track urges to do behaviors that we're trying to work on and whether we actually do those behaviors. And then we track skills use. And so when you bring in your diary card, that kind of shapes how the session is going to go. We first look at life interfering behaviors. If there's anything that's going to get in the way of you being alive by next session, we are going to work on that first. Now, if there's nothing life interfering, we talk about therapy interfering behaviors. So is there anything that gets in the way of you coming to therapy? If you're always coming late, if I'm always coming late, right? We got to talk about that because the, because we believe that DBT works. We got to make sure you're getting the treatment. That's number two. Number three is quality of life interfering behaviors. That's things like smoking, disordered eating, um, body image, anxiety, panic attacks, things like that. That will be our third thing on our hierarchy. And then the next thing is learning skills. So we're going to organize the session based on that hierarchy and we work on that target. That kind of organizes the session. That said, every session can look really different, but we start picking up through just even a few sessions. We start learning patterns. What are the kinds of things that are setting off the things that are not working in your life? Five people come and they say zero to a hundred, nothing happened. There's nothing to do about it. That's it. And we start to learn, no, there's actually real things that are happening that's driving it and what we can actually do to make that different. So what happens? So let's say you figured it out. Someone says zero to hundred. I have no idea. I was on the subway. No idea. I suddenly went to a hundred. You break it down. You find it. Just because they found it, the 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 trigger. Do you like the word trigger? Because there's a con- it's a controversial word. I don't like the word trigger. I like the word like, trigger. Just had so much loaded. Yes. I like the word prompt. Something that okay. prompt. Something that sets it off. Set it off. Okay. Okay. So you find out. You find out what set it off. Okay. Now that I know, what is that going to help me? Yes. Yeah, so then we do a solution analysis, and you talk about the skills that we've learned. And how those can actually be applied in these different situations. And we'll sometimes go through 
the same. We'll do this week after week and come up with different solutions each time. But we're going to talk about what worked, what didn't work, why didn't it work? How is that happening? Could you have used phone coaching here? Could you have used emotional regulation here? Maybe if you have been practicing mindfulness, that would have made a difference. It sounds like you were trying to use interpersonal effectiveness, but you weren't in a regulated enough space to be using that. Maybe this isn't the most effective time to be using it. So we'll go through and pick apart those pieces. I find that I speak to people that work with DBT. They are so super committed to the process. They're so inspiring. I'm awestruck by them because they're really putting everything to work because in order for it to work, you need to do the work. And it's not easy with DBT because there's a lot of questions, a lot of awareness, mindfulness, practices. It's constant. If you want to really heal through DBT, you have to be committed to the process. Yeah. And that's why we start with commitment. There's that pre-treatment. We don't even do any treatment until there's commitment on the table. And there's so many contracts that are, are written. I usually just have one. And sometimes I'll, I'll ask people to sign it, but it's more, it's, it's more of a way of feeling, no, I'm really doing this. But commitment for themselves, that they're uh-huh. committed to the process of showing up and doing the work and not giving up and not, I... I heard many times that people wrote a contract, how long they're willing to live for, and they're, they're going to revisit it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if, if we're going to do this, if, if we're going to offer you this treatment, you've got to be alive for it. So we might make a contract that you're going to commit to doing this treatment for six months. That means you're going to be alive for six months. But let me ask you this. Someone writes that contract, really writes that contract. And then they have yeah. a moment of suicidal thoughts and that's it. I can't, you know what? I don't care if I break this contract. I'm never going to see Dr. Chayali by anymore. So I don't have to give her uh, any answers why I broke the contract because I'm killing myself today. So how is that a commitment if they're going through that? Okay, I wrote the contract. I'm, I, I, I cannot take this pain anymore. I, I no longer want to live. I am done. Kyaliba will have to just take that contract and burn it because, or just say, oh, I failed the contract. And I quite frankly, don't, quite frankly, I don't care because I don't care about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and listen, at the end of the day, I always, I'm not going to come with my lawyers and sue you over this. That's not the point of the contract. Point of the contract is this is an agreement we're making between each other. And the agreement does not mean that you're not going to have suicidal urges. It means that you're willing to stay committed to being alive, even with suicidal urges. So when you're feeling suicidal, do something about it. You're going to call your therapist. Yeah. It's okay to be suicidal. That's, that's not antithetical to this work. That's, that's the work. So yeah. So I'm willing to do this even with suicidality, even with urges for self-harm, even, even with sometimes actually self-harming and I'm committing, I'm not going to self-harm. And then sometimes people go ahead and self-harm. How does that work? I'm staying committed that I'm not, but that means that I'm actively working Toward stopping. But do you believe that the people that are going through that emotion at that time and they're at a hundred or even 150, do you yeah. think they can really process that? Oh, I signed a contract. I'm going to wait until tomorrow. So listen, all these, this goes into suicidology and the whole theory behind how much we can actually influence. End of the day, if somebody's really going to kill themselves, they're really going to kill themselves. And, and that's it. When people are engaged and committed to treatment, risk goes down immensely. More or less, we, we're not very good predictors of, of actual completion of suicide as therapists. Sorry to acknowledge, we just, we don't have a great track record, but, but, our, but we, what we see is that when people are engaged and committed to treatment, risk goes down. It's considered less risky. I always say, if I list risk factors for a patient, I say protective factors include commitment and engagement to treatment. That's protective. So fascinating. This is, it's fascinating. Do you have to be a therapist in order to work with DBT, to teach, to work with clients with DBT? Or can teachers, mentors, mindfulness coaches acquire the skill and work with people with it? So I would never recommend that somebody who's not a licensed professional do DBT offer it in its entirety. It's a really comprehensive, complex, and nuanced treatment. And as you can imagine, we're dealing with nuance and, and co- yeah, and, and not, in, not in a judgmental or bad way, just yeah. we're dealing with complicated people. We risks with that. We yeah. want people who really know what we're talking about. That said, CBT skills, you acknowledged, I developed a, a mindfulness curriculum for preschool through eighth grade because I was constantly hearing my clients say, I wish I would have learned this skill as a child. And are they taking it into schools? Yeah, it's being used in a school and it's been amazing. DBT skills has been written as a curriculum for schools 
mostly more for the high school age. But yeah, there is a book called DBT Skills in Schools, and schools can implement that as pretty much written to be used as it is. So skills are not exclusive for therapists. Anybody can pick up a book and can read about these skills and learn these skills. And these are healthy, useful life skills. So if somebody learns about these skills and wants to share them with other people, God bless. I'm very supportive. I think just, like I said before, it's very important to differentiate for people. You don't want anybody to walk around thinking, I did DBT and it didn't work for me. So I, I love that you explained it so clearly because I have a better understanding now. I really have a better understanding and it really helped me. So, in, so let's say schools will start implementing it in preschools or elementary school, who is teaching it? A therapist? So sometimes it's like a school therapist, but sometimes it's just like a health teacher. And with my mindfulness curriculum, I'm very into having the teachers themselves, the teachers, the regular teachers who are in the classroom, because we show the greatest change when it's the teacher who's already in the classroom, because that's who the kids are seeing all the time. Having a therapist come in once a week for half an hour is very nice. Not the same. And then go back to my phone coaching conversation, right? The teacher's in the classroom. And if the teacher is living skillfully and modeling skills use, it's that's a huge impact on that classroom. How do schools acquire what you put together? You can look on my website and reach out to me. And you mentor them? You walk them through how to yeah. implement it? Do you mentor them for a year long or you just give them a few Zoom classes and you, if there are questions and answers, they come back? Depends on what the school wants. Like I've done, you can do full implementation where I'm, I'm like really involved with the school. Or you can purchase the curriculum and this, I'm talking about, this is a purely a mindfulness with a lot of DBT skills thrown in curriculum. And then, yeah, you can implement it at your own pace. The DBT skills in schools book, anybody can buy that. It has the handouts right there in the book written out for you, how to go through each lesson. And and yeah, it's pretty user-friendly. I'm going to ask you two more questions. Do you find that your client, do you have any kids clients? Because I know that you, your target is kids and adolescents, right? Yeah, I work with young adults, children, adolescents, really anybody struggling with big emotions. I offer services for people with big emotions, however that shows up. And do you find that the kids are really understanding the, the process and they're working with it? It's easy for them or... A developed mind understands the process better. A younger child has a better chance of living a healthier life the younger that you intervene. So I am very passionate about getting this to families when the child is as young as possible. Why wait till they're suffering more? That doesn't really make much logical sense to me. The whole package. It looks a little bit different. For children, we're not necessarily, we don't, I don't really recommend, and the, the way the treatment was designed, we don't really recommend a skills group for kids. Skills group, we do teens and up. For kids, we do individual. Mm -hmm. And for kids, we also start with parent-only sessions for a good while until we're confident that the environment is what we call change-ready. The environment has to be supportive of change before we're going to ask this kid to do anything different. And then we bring them in for skills training together with the parents. But the idea is that the parents are ultimately going to be the therapist, quote unquote. I, again, like I said, I don't want to be in, in your life for forever. I don't want you to, you're not tethered to me. My goal is to help you to live your healthy life and go live it. So the same thing with kids, the parent is the um, ultimate authority and we want to maintain that. So yes, I teach the skills. Yes, I work with the family, but ultimately the kid goes to the parents when they need coaching. Parents come to the therapist for coaching, but the child comes to the parents. So yeah, so we learn skills, parents and children together and then, and then, yeah, work from there. Wow. I, I have such a better understanding of the process and I'm so grateful. And I think it was very important. I might want to have you on again for to just to discuss mindfulness, because I know that you're very in for mindful into mindfulness and how that is a huge part in DBT and how people can practice. So maybe we should do that. And I also think that they should we should have another whole episode on DBT for children. I want to deep dive into Absolutely. that for parents that are confused, parents that are scared. And how to take their anxiety down because the parents that are so anxious about their kids' misregulation and how they're not showing up the way they dreamt their kids would show up is so scary for parents. And maybe we have to educate them what's really going on. I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for your education, for your smile. I wish that people could see your smile. And how you explained to me the, the whole idea of you got to be all in. You got to be all in from all the sides. And it's really for the good of the patients. It's not a business. It's these are our lives. And I'm so grateful that you're out there. And I'm grateful for my friend that introduced me to you. And 
keep doing your good work. Is there anything you want to share before we leave? You inspired me with your question about kids. So I just want to leave with this one piece. My mentor who developed DBT for children, Francesca, says she had a client she worked with and the father and the kid was really artistic and, and creative. And the father really wanted him to be into sports. And the kid was falling over his feet and just getting made fun of by the other kids and not being successful in it. And the father would just berate him and push him. And and the, and Francesca said to him, why do you keep doing that? And he said, you like metaphors. I'm gonna give you a metaphor. I am Michelangelo. My child is a block of marble. I have to chip the block of marble to create David, the statue of David that Michelangelo created. Francesca said, oh, I love it. Beautiful metaphor. I'm just gonna make one tiny change. Children are born David. Children are born in the image of God. They are perfect the way that they are born. The parent's job is to see the David love the David, help the child see the David. But parents come and they chip and they chip and they chip because they want the child to look in their image, not in the image that God created them. And then what you're left with is a pile of rubble on the floor. I have tears. I literally have tears and goosebumps. Oh my God. I I don't even know why it touched my emotion so deeply. Maybe I wanted my parents to see the David inside me that they didn't see. For those of us who are grown, for those of us who are grown, Our job is to see our David, love our David, live our David. You are perfect just the way you are. And you have to see that. So if you ask me, there's one more thing. That was my one more thing on my mind. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I I hardly ever cry on a recording, but that really hit home because there's so many parents out there that so want to see their the image of their David and their child versus knowing that I'm going to, I'm going to throw out a Hebrew pasuk that I usually don't bring in the Bible at all. But, and we should just remember, God is in each one. And God, my, my mentor, Paul Cummings says, God does not sponsor flops, doesn't sponsor flops. Each one is for a reason, exactly the way God wanted. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'll let you go. I know you're late. I'm sorry. Thank you yeah. for joining us. If someone wants to reach you, just let us yeah. what how they reach you. Sure. You, my email is Dr. K D R K at the mindfulwoman.org. Or the email for our group practice is info at the cbtdbtcenter.com. Love to hear from you. Okay, we're gonna put everything in the show notes. You inspired me beyond. Thank you very much and have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.